Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading Book 4, Chapters 5 and 6 of The Black Arrow by Robert Louis Stevenson. In the last chapter, Dick and Lawless were being held captive in the Abbey Church whilst his love was to be married. Tonight's story will be one of merciful earls, fleeing priests, and angry seamen. First, let's make sure we're ready to fall asleep. Whatever the reason is that you've decided to listen tonight, you've already taken the first important step to getting a good night's rest, and that's making a conscious effort to do something for your own well-being and relaxation. Everyone falls asleep in their own time and in their own way, and so, as you're on your own path to sleep tonight, all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. And now, let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Dick, who sat stunned among contrary emotions, Grasping the desk in front of him, beheld a movement in the crowd, people jostling backwards and eyes and arms uplifted. Following these signs, he beheld three or four men with bent bows, leaning from the clerestory gallery. At the same instant, they delivered their discharge and before the clamour and cries of the astounded populace had time to swell full upon the ear, they had flitted from their perch and disappeared. The nave was full of swaying heads and voices screaming. The ecclesiastics thronged in terror from their places. The music ceased and though the bells overhead continued for some seconds to clang upon the air, some wind of the disaster seemed to find its way at last even to the chambers where the ringers were leaping on their ropes, and they also desisted from their merry labours. Right in the midst of the nave, the bridegroom lay stone dead, 
pierced by two black arrows. The bride had fainted. Sir Daniel stood, towering above the crowd in his surprise and anger, a cloth-yard shaft quivering in his left forearm and his face streaming blood from another which had grazed his brow. Long before any search could be made for them, the authors of this tragic interruption had clattered down a turnpike stair and decamped by a postern door. But Dick and Lawless still remained in pawn. They had, indeed, arisen on the first alarm and pushed manfully to gain the door. But with the narrowness of the stalls and the crowding of terrified priests and choristers, the attempts had been in vain, and they had stoically resumed their places. And now, pale with horror, Sir Oliver rose to his feet and called upon Sir Daniel, pointing with one hand to Dick. Here, he cried, is Richard Shelton. Alas, the hour, blood guilty. Seize him, bid him be seized, for all our lives' sake. Take him and bind him surely. He hath sworn our fall. Sir Daniel was blinded by anger, blinded by the hot blood that still streamed across his face. Where, he bellowed, hail him forth by the cross of Hollywood, but he shall rue this hour. The crowd fell back, and a party of archers invaded the choir, laid rough hands on Dick, dragged him head foremost from the stool, and thrust him by the shoulders down the chancel steps. Lawless on his part sat as still as a mouse. Sir Daniel, brushing the blood out of his eyes, stared blinkingly upon his captive. I, he said, treacherous and insolent, I have thee fast, and by all potent oaths, for every drop of blood that now trickles in mine eye, I will wring a groat out of thy carcass. Away with him, he added. Here is no place. Off with him to my house. I will number every joint of thy body with a torture. But Dick, putting off his captors, uplifted his voice. Sanctuary, he shouted. Sanctuary. Ho oh, there, my fathers. They would drag me from the church. From the church thou hast defiled with murder, boy, added a tall man, magnificently dressed. On what probation, cried Dick, they do accuse me, indeed, of some complicity, but have not proved one tittle. I was, in truth, a suitor for this damsel's hand, and she, 
I will be bold to say it, repaid my suit with favour. But what then? To love a maid is no offence. I trow, nay, nor to gain her love. In all else, I stand here free from guiltiness. There was a murmur of approval among the bystanders. So boldly Dick declared his innocence. But at the same time, a throng of accusers arose upon the other side, crying how he had been found last night in Sir Daniel's house, how he wore a sacrilegious disguise, and in the midst of the Babel. Sir Oliver indicated lawless, both by voice and gesture, as accomplice to the fact. He, in his turn, was dragged from his seat and set beside his leader. The feelings of the crowd rose high on either side, and while some dragged the prisoners to and fro to favour their escape, others cursed and struck them with their fists. Dick's ears rang and his brain swam dizzily, like a man struggling in the eddies of a furious river. But the tall man who had already answered Dick, by a prodigious exercise of voice, restored silence and ordered in the mob. Search them, he said, for arms. We may so judge of their intentions. Upon Dick they found no weapon but his poniard, and this told in his favour, until one man officiously drew it from its sheath and found it still uncleansed of the blood of Rutter. At this there was a great shout among Sir Daniel's followers, which the tall man suppressed by a gesture of an imperious glance. But when it came to the turn of Lawless, there was found under his gown a sheaf of arrows identical with those that had been shot. How say ye now? asked the tall man, frowningly, of Dick. Sir, replied Dick, I am here in sanctuary, is it not so? Well, sir, I see by your bearing that ye are high in station, and I read in your countenance the marks of piety and justice. To you, then, I will yield me prisoner, and that blithely, foregoing the advantage of this holy place. But rather than to be yielded into the discretion of that man, whom I do here accuse with a loud voice to be the murderer of my natural father and the unjust retainer of my lands and revenues, rather than that, I would beseech you, under favour, with your own gentle hand, to dispatch me on the spot. Your own ears have heard him, how before that I was proven guilty, he did threaten me with torments. It standeth not with your own honour to deliver me to my sworn enemy, 
and old oppressor, but to try me fairly by the way of law, and, if that is to be guilty indeed, to slay me mercifully. My lord, cried Sir Daniel, ye will not hearken to this wolf. His bloody dagger wreaks him the lies unto his face. Nay, but suffer me, good knight, returned the tall stranger. Your own vehemence doth somewhat tell against yourself. And here the bride, who had come to herself some minutes past, and looked wildly upon this scene, broke loose from those that held her, and fell upon her knees before the last speaker. My lord of Risingham, she cried, hear me in justice. I am here in this man's custody by mere force, reft from mine own people. Since that day, I had never pity, countenance, nor comfort from the face of man, but from him only, Richard Shelton, whom they now accuse and labour to undo. My lord, if he was yesternight in Sir Daniel's mansion, it was I that brought him there. He came but at my prayer, and thought to do no hurt. While yet Sir Daniel was a good lord to him, he fought with them of the Black Arrow loyally, but when his foul guardian sought his life by practices, and he fled by night, for his soul's sake, out of that bloody house, whither was he to turn? He helpless and penniless. Or if he be fallen among ill company, whom should ye blame? The lad that was unjustly handled, or the guardian? that did abuse his trust. And then the short young lady fell on her knees by Joanna's side. And I, my good lord and natural uncle, she added, I can bear testimony on my conscience and before the face of all that what this maiden saith is true. It was I, unworthy, that did lead the young man in. Earl Risingham had heard in silence, and when the voices ceased, he still stood silent for a space. Then he gave Joanna his hand to rise, though it was to be observed that he did not offer the like courtesy to her who had called herself his niece. Sir Daniel, he said, here is a right intricate affair, the which, with your good leave, it shall be mine to examine and adjust. Content ye then, your business is in careful hands, justice shall be done to you, and in the meanwhile get ye incontinently home, and have your hurts attended. The air is shrewd, and I would not ye took cold upon these scratches. 
he made a sign with his hand. It was passed down the nave by the obsequious servants, who waited there upon his smallest gesture. Instantly, without the church, a tucket sounded shrill, and through the open portal, archers and men-at-arms, uniformly arrayed in the colours and wearing the badge of Lord Risingham, began to file into the church, took Dick and Lawless from those who had detained them, and closing their files about the prisoners, marched forth again and disappeared. As they were passing, Joanna held both her hands to Dick and cried him her farewell, and the bridesmaid, nothing downcast by her uncle's evident displeasure, blew him a kiss with a keep-your-heart-up lion-driver that for the first time since the accident called up a smile to the faces of the crowd. Chapter 5 Earl Risingham Earl Risingham, although by far the most important person then in Shoreby, was poorly lodged in the house of a private gentleman upon the extreme outskirts of the town. Nothing but the armed men at the doors and the mounted messengers that kept arriving and departing announced the temporary residence of a great lord. Thus it was that, from lack of space, Dick and Lawless were clapped into the same apartment. Well spoken, Master Richard, said the outlaw. It was excellently well spoken, and, for my part, I thank you cordially. Here we are in good hands. We shall be justly tried and some time this evening, decently hanged on the same tree. Indeed, my poor friend, I do believe it, answered Dick. Yet have we a string to our bow, returned Lawless. Ellis Duckworth is a man out of ten thousand. He holdeth you right near his heart, both for your own and for your father's sake, and knowing you're guiltless of this fact, he will stir earth and heaven to bear you clear. It may not be, said Dick. What can he do? He hath but a handful. Alack, if it were by tomorrow, could I but keep a certain tryst and hour before noon tomorrow. All were, I think, otherwise. But now there is no help. Well, concluded Lawless, and ye will stand to it for my innocence. I will stand to it for yours, and that stoutly. It shall naught avail us, but an I be to hang, it shall not be for lack of swearing. And then, while Dick gave himself over to his reflections, 
The old rogue curled himself down into a corner, pulled his monkish hood about his face, and composed himself to sleep. Soon he was loudly snoring. So utterly had his long life of leadership and adventure blunted the sense of apprehension. It was long afternoon, and the day was already failing, before the door was opened, and Dick taken forth and led upstairs to where, in a warm cabinet, Earl Risingham sat musing over the fire. On his captive's entrance, he looked up. Sir, he said, I knew your father, who was a man of honour, and this inclineth me to be the more lenient, but I may not hide from you that heavy charges lie against your character. Ye do consort with murderers and robbers upon a clear probation. Ye have carried war against the king's peace. Ye are suspected to have piratically seized upon a ship. Ye are found skulking with a counterfeit presentment in your enemy's house. A man is slain that very evening. And it like you, my lord, Dick interposed. I will at once avow my guilt such as it is. I slew this fellow Rutter, and to the proof, searching in his bosom. Here is a letter from his wallet. Lord Risingham took the letter, and opened and read it twice. Ye have read this, he inquired. I have read it, answered Dick. Are ye for York or Lancaster? the earl demanded. My lord, it was but a little while back that I was asked that question, and knew not how to answer it, said Dick. But having answered once, I will not vary. My lord, I am for York. The earl nodded approvingly. Honestly replied, he said, but wherefore then, deliver me this letter? Nay, but against traitors, my lord, are not all sides arrayed, cried Dick. I would they were, young gentleman, returned the earl, and I do at least approve of your saying. There is more youth than guile in you, I do perceive, and were not for Sir Daniel a mighty man upon our side, I were half tempted to espouse your quarrel. For I have inquired, and it appears ye have been hardly dealt with, and have much excuse. But look ye, sir, I am, before all else, a leader in the Queen's interest, and thou by nature a just man, as I believe, and leaning even to the excess of mercy. Yet must I order my goings for my party's interest, and, 
to keep Sir Daniel. I would go far about. My lord, returned Dick, ye will think me very bold to counsel you, but do ye count upon Sir Daniel's faith? Methought he had changed sides intolerably often. Nay, it is the way of England. What would ye have? the earl demanded. But ye are unjust to the knight of Tunstall, and as faith goes in this unfaithful generation, he hath of late been honourably true to us of the Lancaster. Even in our last reverence he stood firm. And it pleases you then, said Dick, to cast your eye upon this letter. Ye might somewhat change your thought of him. And he handed to the earl Sir Daniel's letter to Lord Wensleydale. The effect upon the earl's countenance was instant. He lowered like an angry lion, and his hand, with a sudden movement, clutched at his dagger. Ye have read this also, he asked. Even so, said Dick. It is your lordship's own estate he offers to Lord Wensleydale. It is my own estate, even as ye say, returned the earl. I am your bedesman for this letter. It hath shown me a fox's hole. Command me, Master Shelton. I will not be backwards in gratitude. And to begin with, York or Lancaster, true man or thief, I do now set you at freedom. Go, a Mary's name but judge it right that I retain and hang your fellow, Lawless. The crime hath been most open, and it were fitting that some open punishment should follow. My lord, I make it my first suit to you to spare him also, pleaded Dick. It is an old, condemned rogue, thief, and vagabond Master Shelton, said the earl. He hath been gallows ripe this score of years, and whether for one thing or another, whether tomorrow or the day after, where is the great choice? Yet, my lord, it was through love to me that he came hither, answered Dick, and I were curlish, and thankless to desert him. Master Shelton, ye are troublesome, replied the earl severely. It is an evil way to prosper in this world. How be it, and to be quit of your importuity, I will once more humour you. Go then, together, but go warily and get swiftly out of Shoreby town. For this Sir Daniel, whom may the saints confound, thirsteth most greedily to have your blood. My lord, I do now offer you in words my gratitude, trusting at some brief date to pay you some of it in service 
replied Dick, as he turned from the apartment. Chapter 6 Our Blaster Again When Dick and Lawless were suffered to steal, by a back way, out of the house where Lord Risingham held his garrison, the evening had already come. They paused in the shelter of the garden wall to consult on their best course. The danger was extreme. If one of Sir Daniel's men caught sight of them and raised the view hello, they would be run down and butchered instantly. And not only was the town of Shoreby a mere net of peril for their lives, but to make for the open country was to run the risk of patrols. A little way off, upon some open ground, they spied a windmill standing, and hard by that, a very large granary with open doors. How if we lay there until the nightfall, Dick proposed. And Lawless, having no better suggestion to offer, they made a straight push for the granary at a run, and concealed themselves behind the door among some straw. The daylight rapidly departed, and presently the moon was silvering the frozen snow. Now or never was their opportunity to gain the goat and bagpipes unobserved and change their tell-tale garments. Yet even then, it was advisable to go round by the outskirts and not run the gauntlet of the marketplace, where, in the concourse of people, they stood the more imminent peril to be recognised and slain. This course was a long one. It took them not far from the house by the beach, now lying dark and silent, and brought them forth at last by the margin of the harbour. Many of the ships, as they could see by the clear moonshine, had weighed anchor, and, profiting by the calm sea, proceeded for more distant parts. Answerably to this, the rude alehouses along the beach, although, in defence of the curfew law, they still shone with fire and candle, were no longer thronged with customers, and no longer echoed to the chorus of sea song. Hastily, half running, with their monkish raiments kilted to the knee, they plunged through the deep snow and threaded the labyrinth of the marine lumber, and they were already more than halfway round the harbour when, as they were passing close before an alehouse, the door suddenly opened and let out a gush of light upon their fleeting figures. Instantly they stopped and made believe to engage in earnest conversation. Three men, one after another, came out of the alehouse, and the last closed the door behind him. All three were unsteady upon their feet, as if they had passed the day in great potations, and they now stood wavering in the moonlight, 
like men who knew not what they would be after. The tallest of the three was talking in a loud, lamentable voice. Seven pieces of as good Gascony as ever a tapster broached, he was saying. The best ship out of the port of Dartmouth, a Virgin Mary parcel gilt. Thirteen pounds of good gold money. I have had losses too, interrupted one of the others. I have had losses of my own, gossip our blaster. I was robbed at the Maramus of five shillings and a leather wallet well worth ninepence farthing. Dick's heart smote him at what he heard. Until that moment, he had not perhaps thought twice of the poor skipper who had been ruined by the loss of the good hope. So careless, in those days, were men who wore arms of the goods and interests of their inferiors. But this sudden encounter reminded him sharply of the high-handed manner and ill-ending of his enterprise, and both he and Lawless turned their heads the other way to avoid the chance of recognition. The ship's dog had, however, made his escape from the wreck and found his way back again to Shoreby. He was now at Alabaster's heels, and suddenly sniffing and pricking his ears, he darted forward and began barking furiously at the two sham friars. His master unsteadily followed him. Hey, shipmates, he cried, have ye a penny piece for a poor old shipman, clean destroyed by pirates? I am a man that would have paid for both the Thursday morning, and now here I be, a Saturday night, begging for a flagon of ale. Ask my man Tom, if ye misdoubt me, seven pieces of good Gascon wine, a ship that was mine own, and was my father's before me, a blessed Mary of plain tree wood and parcel gilt, and thirteen pounds in gold and silver. Hey, what say ye, a man that fought the French too? For I have fought the French. I have cut more French throats upon the high seas than ever a man that sails out of Dartmouth. Come, a penny apiece. Neither Dick nor Lawless durst answer him a word, lest he should recognise their voices, and they stood there as helpless as a ship ashore, not knowing where to turn, nor what to hope. Are ye dumb, boy? inquired the skipper. Mates, he added, with a hiccup, they be dumb. I like not this manner of discourtesy. For a man be dumb, so be as he's courteous, he will still speak when he has been spoken to, methinks. By this time the sailor, Tom, who was a man of great personal strength, seemed to have conceived some suspicion of the two speechless figures, 
and being soberer than his captain, stepped suddenly before him, took Lawless roughly by the shoulder, and asked him, with an oath, what ailed him that he held his tongue. To this the outlaw, thinking all was over, made answer by a wrestling fate that stretched the sailor on the sand, and, calling upon Dick to follow him, took to his heels among the lumber. The affair passed in a second, before Dick could run at all. Our blaster had him in his arms. Tom, crawling on his face, had caught him by one foot, and the third man had a drawn cutlass brandishing above his head. It was not so much the danger, it was not so much the annoyance that now bowed down the spirits of young Shelton. It was the profound humiliation to have escaped Sir Daniel, convinced Lord Risingham, and now fall helpless in the hands of this old, drunken sailor, and not merely helpless, but, as his conscience loudly told him when it was too late, actually guilty, actually the bankrupt debtor of the man whose ship he had stolen and lost. Bring me him back into the alehouse, till I see his face, said our blaster. Nay, nay, returned Tom, but let us first unload his wallet, lest the other lads cry share. But though he was searched from head to foot, not a penny was found on him. Nothing but Lord Foxham's signet, which they plucked savagely from his finger. Turn me him to the moon, said the skipper, and taking Dick by the chin, he cruelly jerked his head into the air. Blessed virgin, he said, it is the pirate. Hey, cried Tom, by the virgin of Bordeaux, it is the man himself, repeated Darblaster. What sea thief do I hold you? he cried. Where is my ship? Where is my wine? Hey, have I you in my hands? Tom, give me one end of a cord here. I will so truss me this sea thief, hand and foot together, like a basting turkey. Marry, I will so bind him up, and thereafter I will soon beat, so beat him. And so he ran on, winding the cord meanwhile about Dick's limbs with the dexterity peculiar to seamen, and at every turn, and cross securing it with a knot, and tightening the whole fabric with a savage pull. When he had done, the lad was a mere package in his hands, as helpless as the dead. The skipper held him at arm's length, and laughed aloud. Then he fetched him a stunning buffet on the ear, and then turned him about, and furiously kicked and kicked him. 
Anger rose up in Dick's bosom like a storm. Anger strangled him, and he thought to have died. But when the sailor, tired of this cruel play, dropped him all his length upon the sand and turned to consult with his companions, he instantly regained command of his temper. Here was a momentary respite, ere they began again to torture him. He might have found some method of escape from this degrading and fatal misadventure. Presently, sure enough, and while his captors were still discussing what to do with him, he took heart of grace and, with a pretty steady voice, addressed them. My masters, he began, are ye gone clean foolish? Here hath heaven put into your hands as pretty an occasion to grow rich as ever shipmen had, such as ye might make thirty oversea adventures and not find again. And by the mass, what do ye beat me? Nay, so would an angry child. But for long-headed Tarry Johns, that fear not fire nor water, and that love gold as they love beef, methinks ye are not wise. Aye, said Tom, now ye trust ye would cozen us. Cozen you, repeated Dick. Nay, if ye be fools, it would be easy. But if ye be shrewd fellows, as I trow ye are, ye can see plainly where your interest lies. When I took your ship from you, we were many. We were well clad and armed. But now, bethink you a little, who mustered that array? One incontestably that hath much gold. And if he, being already rich, continueth to hunt after more, even in the face of storms, bethink you once more, shall there not be a treasure somewhere hidden? What meaneth he? asked one of the men. Why, if ye have lost an old skiff, and a few jugs of vinegary wine, continued Dick. Forget them, for the trash they are, and do ye rather buckle to an adventure worth the name that shall, in twelve hours, make or mar you for ever. But take me up from where I lie, and let us go somewhere near at hand, and talk across a flagon, for I am sore and frozen, and my mouth is half among the snow. He seeks but to cozen us, said Tom contemptuously. Cozen, cozen, cried the third man. I would I could see the man that could cozen me. He were a cozener indeed. Nay, I was not born yesterday. I can see a church when it hath a steeple on it, and for my part, gossip our blaster, methinks there is some sense in this young man. Shall we go hear him, indeed? Say, shall we go hear him? 
I would look gladly on a pottle of strong ale, good master Pirrit, returned our blaster. How say ye, Tom, but then the wallet is empty. I will pay, said the other. I will pay. I would fain see this matter out, I do believe, upon my conscience, there is gold in it. Nay, if ye get again to drinking, all is lost, cried Tom. Gossip, our blaster, ye suffer your fellow to have too much liberty, returned Master Pirrit. Would ye be led by a hired man? Fie, fie. Peace, fellow, said our blaster, addressing Tom. Will ye put your oar in? Truly a fine pass when the crew is to correct the skipper. Well then, go your way, said Tom. I wash my hands of you. Set him then upon his feet, said Master Pirrit. I know a privy place where we may drink and discourse. If I am to walk, my friend, ye must set my feet at liberty, said Dick, when he had been once more planted upright like a post. He saith true, laughed Pirrit. Truly, he could not walk encountered as he is. Give it a slit, out with your knife, and slit it, gossip. Even our blaster paused at this proposal, but as his companion continued to insist, and Dick had the sense to keep the merest wooden indifference of expression, and only shrugged his shoulders over the delay, the skipper consented at last, and cut the cords which tied his prisoner's feet and legs. Not only did this enable Dick to walk, but the whole network of his bonds being proportionately loosened, he felt the arm behind his back begin to move more freely and could hope, with time and trouble, to entirely disengage it. So much he owed already to the owlish silliness and greed of Master Pirrit. That worthy now assumed the lead, and conducted them to the very same rude alehouse where Lawless had taken Arblaster on the day of the gale. It was now quite deserted. The fire was a pile of red embers, radiating the most ardent heat, and when they had chosen their places, and the landlord had set before them a measure of mulled ale, both Pirrit and Arblaster stretched forth their legs and squared their elbows like men bent upon a pleasant hour. The table at which they sat, like all the others in the alehouse, consisted of a heavy, square board set on a pair of barrels, and each of the four curiously assorted cronies sat at one side of the square, Pirrit facing Arblaster and Dick opposite to the common sailor. And now, young man, said Pirrit, to your tale, it doth appear, indeed, 
that ye have somewhat abused our gossip our blaster. But what then? Make it up to him. Show him but this chance to become wealthy, and it will go pledge he will forgive you. So far Dick had spoken pretty much at random, but it was now necessary, under the supervision of six eyes, to invent and teal some marvellous story, and, if it were possible, get back into his hands the all-important signet. To squander time was the first necessity. The longer his stay lasted, the more would his captors drink, and the surer he should be when he attempted his escape. Well, Dick was not much of an inventor, and what he told was pretty much the tale of Ali Baba, with Shoreby and Tunstall Forest substituted for the East, and the treasures of the cavern rather exaggerated than diminished. As the reader is aware, it is an excellent story, and has but one drawback, that it is not true, and so, as these three simple shipmen now heard it for the first time, their eyes stood out of their faces, and their mouths gaped like codfish at a fishmonger's. Pretty soon, a second measure of mulled ale was called for, and while Dick was still artfully spinning out the incidents, a third followed the second. Here was the position of the parties towards the end. Our blaster, three parts drunk and one half asleep, hung helpless on his stool. Even Tom had been much delighted with the tale and his vigilance had abated in proportion. Meanwhile, Dick had gradually wormed his right arm clear of its bonds, and was ready to risk it all. And so, said Perrette, you're one of these. I was made so, replied Dick. Against my will, but an I could get a sack or two of gold coin to my share. I should be a fool indeed to continue dwelling in a filthy cave and standing shot and buffet like a soldier. Here be we four good. Let us, then, go forth into the forest tomorrow ere the sun be up. Could we come honestly by a donkey? It were better, but an we cannot, we have our four strong backs and I warrant me we shall come home staggering. Pirrit licked his lips. And this magic, he said, this password, whereby the cave is opened, how call ye it, friend? Nay, none know the word but the three chiefs, returned Dick. But here is your great good fortune, that, on this very evening, I should be bearer of a spell to open it, and it is a thing not trusted twice a year beyond the captain's wallet. A spell, said our blaster, half awakening and squinting upon Dick with one eye. Aroint thee, no spells, I be a good Christian. Ask my man Tom else. Nay, 
But this is white magic, said Dick. It doth naught with the devil, only the powers of numbers, herbs and planets. Ay, ay, said Perrette. Tis but white magic gossip. There's no sin therein, I do assure you. But proceed, good youth. This spell, in what should it consist? Nay, that I will incontinently show you, answered Dick. Have ye there the ring ye took from my finger? Good. Now hold it forth before you by the extreme finger ends, at the arm's length, and over against the shining of these embers. Tis so exactly. Thus, then, is the spell. With a haggard glance, Dick saw the coast was clear between him and the door. He put up an internal prayer. Then whipping forth his arm, he made but one snatch of the ring, and at the same instant, levering up the table, he sent it bodily over upon the seaman Tom. He, poor soul, went down bawling under the ruins, and before Arblaster understood anything was wrong, or Pirette could collect his dazzled wits, Dick had run to the door and escaped into the moonlit night. The moon, which now rode in the mid-heavens and the extreme whiteness of the snow, made the open ground about the harbour bright as day, and young Shelton leaping, with kilted robe, among the lumber, was a conspicuous figure from afar. Tom and Pirette followed him with shouts. From every drinking shop they were joined by others whom their cries aroused, and presently a whole fleet of sailors was in full pursuit. But Jack Ashore was a bad runner, even in the fifteenth century, and Dick, besides, had a start, which he rapidly improved, until, as he drew near the entrance of a narrow lane, he even paused and looked laughingly behind him. Upon the white floor of snow, all the shipmen of Shoreby came clustering in an inky mass and tailing out rearward in isolated clumps. Every man was shouting or screaming. Every man was gesticulating with both arms in the air. Someone was continually falling, and to complete the picture, when one fell, a dozen would fall upon the top of him. The confused mass of sound which they rolled up as high as to the moon was partly comical and partly terrifying to the fugitive whom they were hunting. In itself, it was impotent, for he made sure no seaman in the port could run him down. But mere volume of noise, in so far as it must awake all the sleepers in Shoreby and bring all the skulking sentries to the street, did really threaten him with danger in the front. So, spying a dark doorway at the corner, he whipped briskly into it 
and let the uncouth hunting go by him, still shouting and gesticulating, and all red with hurry, and white with the tumbles in the snow. It was a long while, indeed, before this great invasion of the town by the harbour came to an end, and it was long before silence was restored. For long, lost sailors were still to be heard, pounding and shouting through the streets in all directions and in every quarter of the town. Quarrels followed, sometimes among themselves, sometimes with the men of the patrols. Knives were drawn, blows given and received, and more than one dead body remained behind upon the snow. When a full hour later, the last seaman returned grumbling to the harbour side, and his particular tavern, it may fairly be questioned if he had ever known what manner of man he was pursuing, but it was absolutely sure that he had now forgotten. By next morning, there were many strange stories flying, and a little while after, the legend of the devil's nocturnal visit was an article of fate with all the lads of Shoreby. But the return of the last seaman did not, even yet, set free young Shelton from his imprisonment in the doorway. For some time after, there was a great activity of patrols, and special parties came forth to make the round of the place and report to one or other of the great lords whose slumber had thus been unusually broken. The night was already well spent before Dick ventured from his hiding place and came, safe and sound, but aching with cold and bruises, to the door of the goat and bagpipes. As the law required, there was neither fire nor candle in the house, but he groped his way into the icy corner of the guest room, found an end of blanket which he hitched around his shoulders and creeping close to the nearest sleeper, was soon lost in slumber. <laughs>